first, people who are stuck in Mexico and can't get any information about Sunwing remain very angry. Airport seat surfing in Cancun and Puerto Vallarta for days and little, little if any information about what to do. Seemingly a lack of caring by the airline. Sunwing is a target of much of this outrage. And that brings us to our first guest this afternoon. It is Gabor Lukic, and he is the president and founder of the Air Passenger Rights Group. Joining us now, good afternoon. Good afternoon. You know, a lot of people have been hearing some of these uh, complaints, and we're getting certainly more of them on social media. People stuck in Mexico. Give us a recap of what you know at this point and what you've been hearing about these air passengers. I have limited information on their individual experiences. What I'm aware of is that Sunwing has been uh, quite uh, slow, should I say, with getting back to passengers, with arranging for alternate transportation, and at the same time has been falsely blaming weather for what is clearly its own organizational problem. Uh, We know that the weather was bad last week, but in the past few days, and there were no extraordinary weather conditions that would in any shape or form justify what passengers are experiencing now. Well, there certainly are weather issues uh, back home for the uh, destination for where people are going. But uh, one would think that there's got to be some sort of contingency plan in place. I mean, we do live in Canada. Planes fly back to Canada and uh, and you have a lot of weather in between. Um, so what do you think is really going on there? It's really hard to know. Uh, you know, uh, one wonders whether uh, it's really some kind of financial trouble the airline may be facing. But you know, that's that's uh, based on uh, Sunwing's history. Uh, I don't think that that's actually the case. It's more a culture of just not caring that much about passengers and and expecting that it will blow over, that people will forget by next year and they will anyway book with Sunwing again next time. Uh, the, the, the root cause, in my view, though, is that the federal government is not enforcing passengers' rights. The airlines, and it's not only Sunwing, mind you, uh, although now Sunwing is the most spoken of, the airlines feel that they are beyond the law and that they, they would not face any consequences uh, if they are not obeying the law and if they're not respecting passengers' rights. And that's the results, we're just seeing now the symptoms and the disease is really the government's misconduct, the government's mishandling of passengers' rights. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the government. I mean, the government can do two things, set up rules. And uh, I know you've been an advocate of uh, rules in the past and still are uh, strengthening uh, those passenger uh, manifest. Uh, passenger bill of rights, I guess you'd call them. That's one side of it, but there's also the enforcement side. Does the government ever enforce things with, like, issue fines for uh, situations like this? Very, very rarely, and the fines are symbolic. And that's the root cause of the problem. On the one hand, the rules that are in place, they are passenger protection regulations, are unnecessarily complicated and complex and require the use of disproportionate amount of resources, including judicial resources, to adjudicate 
disputes. As a small claims court adjudicator noted last year here in Nova Scotia, that disputes under the APPR don't lend themselves for quick resolution. And that is 100% the fault of how poor the APPR is. This is something that we have been cautioning Parliament, we have cautioned the government, but they were not listening. The majority, the Liberal uh, government, was not listening. With respect to enforcement, the latest, the last find that you can find on uh, the Canadian Transportation Agency's website, with their federal regulator, is a telltale. It tells all the story of what is wrong. That find relates to 55 violations by WestJet of the obligation to pay compensation under the APPR or provide an explanation why they are not paying within 30 days. WestJet was fined $200 per violation for violating a law where the amount at stake is between $400 and $1,000. So economically, it's actually cheaper for airlines to just occasionally pay a nominal fine than to obey the law. That's why we are here. Absolutely. I mean, you can, uh, I'm no expert on uh, what the logistics cost of uh, getting another plane in place or bringing in more staff would be, but uh, you don't have to be an expert to figure out the fine is uh, pittance compared to actually doing the right thing when it comes to financially, uh, you know, being a bean counter and looking at the price. But there is another side to it. And this is where I wonder if the airlines, I use plural in this case, are getting it wrong. And that is uh, public uh, perception. And certainly when people go to social media and start talking about airlines and uh, and the brands and putting in the, the names of the airlines and the flights and the location, that can't be good for their, uh, for their reputation. Do the airlines not care or is there maybe just no uh, competition so they don't have to care? They don't care sufficiently and past experience shows that the number one factor for passengers to ultimately book or not to book will be just the price. Um, do you remember Dr. Dow? Dr. United Dow. Airlines? Oh, yes. The, right. passenger, the passenger, yeah, he was dragged off and bloodied yep. by airline uh, interested goons, essentially. Do people not book on United on account of that? No. At the time, it resulted actually in some dip in United shares, if my memory serves me right. And a lot of news coverage. It blew over. Yeah, but it blows over. And we now may recall it because we have this conversation, but consumers would be less likely to remember it, and it doesn't affect the bottom line. It doesn't affect the ultimate decision, am I going to book on United or a different airline? That's the consumer behavior. And that explains the necessity for having very consistent, strict, and heavy penalties for breaking the law because the market forces, for various reasons, are not sufficiently strong to enforce the passenger's interest. If they were, you wouldn't need a regulator. Of course, we would need more competition, but even competition doesn't solve all the problems. It's not a magic bullet. When you have only a handful of airlines or even a dozen of airlines, it is still not an ideal free market scenario from an economic perspective, and passengers' bargaining power remains quite limited in that context. That is why even the European Union, they have regulation, they have the gold standard of passenger protection, which is simple and straightforward, 
much easier to adjudicate. It takes a couple of minutes to decide whether someone is or isn't owed compensation. It has been tested and it works for 16 years now. It's but interesting. Regulation is necessary. Yeah, because, you know, when I think of wanting to get away to a sunspot, I think of the location. For me, I've been to Cancun a couple times, been to Puerto Vallarta many times, and uh, two destinations while Cancun, I think of uh, great parties and uh, really nice beach, and Puerto Vallarta, really nice food. I like the culture there, and I never really think of anything but which one serves Vancouver and what is the price going to be to get down there for a package? That's it. So I imagine the airlines kind of get that, don't they? The airlines understand it very well, uh, what, how people think. And uh, this is the reason that having fines is the number one solution, as aggressive and un-Canadian it may sound. Corporations in general have one one expertise in which they can do better than anything else, any other construct, and that's maximizing profits. A corporation which is run properly is doing the best possible decisions from the perspective of having the maximum profit. So if you really want to influence how a corporation behaves, if you want to achieve behavior modification, there's only one practical way of achieving that, and that is affecting its bottom line, affecting its profits. We've been talking with Gabor Lukacs, uh, the founder of airpassengerrights.ca, the website, an outspoken advocate for people who are like those who are stuck in Mexico right now. Sunwing passengers in Cancun and even we're hearing Puerto Vallarta waiting in airports, uh, doing some bench surfing and getting a lack of information. Gabor, uh, you do have recommendations for those people who are still down there and there are still some that are stuck. What are you telling them or what should they do? Passengers down there first should keep their receipts for all expenses incurred. What we are dealing here with is uh, flight cancellation and delays within Sunwing's control. So uh, passengers are owed, first of all, $500 in cash uh, per passenger, 400 APPR. They are owed meals and accommodation, any other expenses, both under the APPR and the Montreal Convention, uh, which is part of the Federal Carriage by Air Act. Um, and if something just doesn't communicate with them uh, in terms of getting them alternate transportation, I recommend passengers to buy a ticket on a different airline, come home and hold uh, something accountable for leaving them there without any alternate transportation. That's not acceptable and something ultimately will have to pay the price of that. You know, uh, the passengers have had a few days to do nothing but talk to each other. So I wonder if there's going to be some sort of coordinated effort to do something. Do you see a class action lawsuit coming out of this? I could see a class action coming out of this uh, because there is sufficient commonality of the legal issues and of the ultimate, of the underlying factual issues. Of course, you can have differences between passengers in the time they had to spend, the expenses they incurred, but the, the underlying issue of what obligations Sunwing had and that this was really a, a situation that has nothing to do with weather uh, is uh, common. So uh, I would hope that uh, class action expert law firm would would uh, get involved. That's something that uh, requires significant amount of expertise and it would also have significant social benefits of behavior modification, which is ultimately my concern. Uh, my biggest worry about what I'm seeing now, as much as I'm feeling terrible for the passengers, is that 
this is how I would be ending uh, spending my Christmases each Christmas helping passengers stranded somewhere in the world because Canada is just not protecting them. Where do we go? No, Canada isn't protecting them. And that brings me to this one for 2023, a week away. Where do we go from here, both uh, for the government, the regulator, and uh, also the airline industry? What can they learn or do about this? Uh, We would need a proper passenger protection regime in Canada that would require legislation by the House of Commons, by Parliament. Uh, We just last week submitted a report about how the regime should be revamped. And uh, we hope that that's going to be adopted and um, the government should be supporting our proposals to simplify the entitlement to compensation, to simplify the process and have very, very significant, serious enforcement regime in place where airlines that break the law will be facing significant financial consequences that do hit the bottom line, that do affect the profits in a, in a noticeable manner to create a real deterrent to this type of shabby corporate conduct. And in the meantime, what should people know if they're uh, planning to book uh, uh, vacations going to Sunspots? In the meantime, I would not book Sunwing. Sunwing has really shown itself to be an irresponsible and corporation which is not worthy of the public's trust. Uh, I would certainly be very wary in general of booking package travel that tends to have more problems than just regularly booking flights. Um, And... uh, if you can, just depart from outside Canada. Try to depart from a U.S. airport, a U.S. airline. They're not perfect, but this level of nonsense is not something that is acceptable there. People there have far more respect to, to uh, passengers' money and, and uh, some standard of uh, customer service. Gabor, uh, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and uh, shedding some light on a really difficult situation. We hope to talk to you again in the uh, new year and uh, hopefully find some better direction going forward for uh, the industry. Thank you very much for having me. The Vancouver School Board, according to some very angry parents, has banned the public from taking part in the decision to seismically upgrade or replace schools. This to make them uh, safe from earthquakes. And according to the Vancouver District Parents Advisory Council, talking on social media, this is in contrast to all other school districts in the province which allow their communities to weigh in on these very important decisions. So why the move? Why going behind closed doors to talk about You know, the need for possibly replacing some schools and certainly spending more money to make the schools that do already exist absolutely safe from earthquakes. Well, someone that's very familiar with this because it is a topic that goes back so long and even before her time is Patty Backus. Patty Backus is a former Georgia Strait K-12 columnist. Georgia Strait... uh, no longer doing that. Uh, former chair of the Vancouver School Board and a education advocate. And Patty, thanks so much for joining us on a rainy Tuesday in that week before Christmas and New Year's. Great. I just got a little bit of echo in the background. I don't know if it's something that's gone on your side, but uh, if you're on a speakerphone, if you could just uh, pick it up. Uh, oh, th- no, I sense that that is a whole lot better. How are you, Patty? I'm good, good. 
Sorry about that. It, no, it's perfect now. <laughs> you know, what do you make of this uh, move? Uh, are the Is the District Parents Advisory Council right from what you've heard? Oh, absolutely. And, and this, this isn't a, an entirely new problem. Uh, I've been working on the seismic school seismic safety file for two decades now in one form or another. I'm trying to retire from it now. But um, it goes back to difficult decisions when there is a school that is seismically unsafe, there are many steps to determining how that will be addressed. And it it often is financially driven, as you can imagine. And they look, uh, government, uh, the provincial government funds these projects. So in a very, I would say, inefficient way in that school boards have to go project by project to government cap in hand with a proposal to either upgrade the school or replace it, or sometimes a combination of the two, where they're sort of a hybrid. They keep part of it and they rebuild part of it. Um, What has happened over the years is government has become, I think, uh, was a bit unprepared for the scale of the work that needed to be done across BC, but particularly in districts like Vancouver, where there are dozens and dozens of seismically high-risk school buildings that are also in very poor condition. So what happens is government um, initially would say to school boards, when the seismic mitigation program started back in 2005 under the BC Liberals, there was a formula that if it cost more than 70% of the price of building a new school to upgrade your school, just build a new school, tear it down, replace it. Uh, and that, that addresses all of the deferred maintenance, and there are hundreds of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance in our public schools, everything from asbestos, lead paint, terrible wiring, pipes, ventilation, all of those things. Um, that became problematic back then because of heritage issues. So there were some schools that had high heritage value, and the public did not want to see them torn down. And in some cases, it was more expensive to do to upgrade the school than it was to rebuild it. And there were complex problems like Strathcona Elementary, one a very historic old school, which ended up being a heritage retention upgrade project, but very complex, quite expensive. Others were partial, Kitsilano Secondary, for example. The facade was kept on the uh, north side of the building, but essentially it was rebuilt. But again, at additional cost. Now we're kind of getting into the the, the home stretch where uh, there's still a lot of schools left to go, and government tends to want to go with the cheapest possible approach, regardless of whether that makes sense over the long term. And they've really, uh, together with the school board, pushed the public out of that process. So the public is not consulted in the project definition planning stage where those decisions are made. And that's uh, leading to, I think, some very poor decisions It's not democratic. These buildings belong to the public. They're being paid for by the public, and the public should have input on how these uh, projects could move forward, and that's currently not happening. Yeah, you know, we're using this word, the public, but I think in this case, uh, what uh, school boards might be afraid of, and especially the Vancouver School Board in this case, uh, is parents who uh, might hear that their kids have a price. Um, and uh, that decisions are being made on those uh, fiscal concerns. And um, we're talking about lives here, aren't we? Uh, When you talk about uh, Vancouver and you compare it to, well, I guess the only other districts that that is about the same size as Surrey, it's really comparing apples and oranges. Um, Vancouver's got the older building. Surrey does not. Surrey is growing 
at a very fast rate. Vancouver is not. So that puts Vancouver in a pretty expensive, unique position, doesn't it? Yeah, we have uh, a problem in, in districts like Vancouver where there is school space, sometimes in very poor condition, mind you, but not the students to fill up that space. And then you have districts like Surrey that has been growing rapidly with all kinds of housing development, and they're having trouble keeping up. And they have uh, schools that have many portables on site and schools that are bursting at the seams. So Vancouver, because it's older and uh, it's become more expensive, as we all know, for families to live in the city, people tend to have much smaller families than they did when many of these schools were built. You know, I went to school in the 60s and 70s. I was the fifth kid in my family. Not a lot of people are having five kids anymore in the city. So schools were much fuller in, in parts of Vancouver. So there's pressure to close them. That's the other piece of this is often government says, hey, look, we'll, we'll seismically upgrade or rebuild that school over there. But why don't you just close that one there and then consolidate? And that can lead to a whole bunch of complex questions and issues as well. Um, but in this case, it's it's not so, the safety piece. I think everyone's on the same page. These schools need to be made safe. Whether they're upgraded or rebuilt, they'll be safe. Uh, built to what they call a life safety standard so people can get out uh, alive and, and mostly uninjured in the event of a serious earthquake. The question that's coming up again and again in Vancouver is, does it make more sense to, to spend $80 million upgrading a school that could be rebuilt for $100 million. And if you do the 80 million, I'm using big numbers here, yep. but you know they're, they're adjusted depending on the, whether you like a large high school versus an elementary school. But you know, if you, if, you're, you need, if you knew your house needed $800,000 worth of work, but you could build a new house for a hundred million, a hundred, or for a million dollars, sorry, my math is off today, for a million dollars. Um, and that $800,000 upgrade was still going to leave you with old wiring, inefficient heating systems, uh, some hazardous materials perhaps in the house. You'd probably find a way to go and do the million dollar job because you know in the long run it doesn't make sense to spend all that money and still have an old house with some very poor out-of-date components. That's the frustration, I think, for parents and you know, not just parents, all of us are taxpayers and contribute. These schools belong to communities, whether we have kids in school or not. That they're spending, uh, I would say, in a very penny-wise, pound-foolish way sometimes to say, well, we're just going to do the minimum we need to do. But, you know, if you're moving kids out of a school for two years, transporting them to another site, taking the walls apart to reinforce them, it makes sense to me to update the wiring if it's, you know, close, in some cases, close to 100 years old. And sometimes that's not happening. We're putting these walls back together and carrying on, knowing we're going to have to go back and do that work somewhere down the road. So to me, it's an irresponsible way to be investing the public's money in, in our infrastructure, which schools are, um, in, in a short-term way to get as many done quickly so they can check off boxes, uh, you know, and the future be damned that we're going to have to come back and probably spend more. So it's not a – so I think what I'm hearing from the parent group is like, hey, like, let's have a discussion. Can't we be part of this and look at what is the really the most cost-effective, pragmatic way to go about these projects? But the school board is kind of washing their hands of it, saying, no, that's a decision made by bureaucrats between our senior managers and the ministry, and we'll come to you once that decision's been made. The whole point of having locally elected school boards is to ensure the public has a say in decision-making and is represented. So to me, they're really, um, their job is to stand up and say, no, we're going to ensure that communities are part of this process and have, have a chance. And that's the call I would make to the newly elected school board. It's a different school board. 
and they need to step up and ensure that parents can be part of this uh, planning process. Well, I also wonder if there's going to be a parent that's going to ask uh, this question, and I'm just trying to rack my brains to see if it's a question that would have a different answer. But when was the last time that Vancouver built a secondary school, a public secondary school, not a new facade, not a, uh, a rebuild or anything like that, but a brand new school? Um, brand new. I, I mean, they rebuilt University Hill, they're rebuilding Hamber, but not a brand new added school. There really hasn't been the demand. I mean, U Hill was ma- majorly expanded on a different site uh, about 10 years ago because it was uh, much too small. But we have had a few new elementary schools. We've had Crosstown. Yep. We've had Norma Rose Point. But there really hasn't been the kind of growth. We're still waiting to get the go-ahead for the new elementary school at the Olympic Village. But Vancouver hasn't had the same sort of pressure for big new schools. In fact, the pressure has been to close high schools. <laughs> Certainly when I was on the board, the provincial government was pressuring us hard well, to close exactly. some high schools. Population is going in the other direction, unlike Surrey or even Coquitlam or other big school districts. But when it does go in the different direction, that means that, uh, you know, when they even talk about this concept of uh, replacing schools, sure, there's the odd elementary school, but I can't think of any brand new school that's been built from uh, the ground up. They're all uh, new facades and some of them are great renovations, but uh, that's about it. Oh, you'll see uh, Eric Hamber on Oak Street is, is a, a new build on the site. They're building a new school beside the old school um, because it was just not practical ah. to upgrade the old one. So that there is one. Uh, okay. Ideally, there should be more coming. I'm not sure there will be. The high schools have been really tough. Uh, the ones that have been done, schools like uh, Van Tech, which was, I think that was about $50 million about 20 years ago, probably be a lot more than that now. Still an old school, but uh, uh, Kitsilano Secondary was mostly redone uh, with some facade retention, but I, for all intents and purposes, it's a new building. Um, but, but those are the tricky ones. We've got big projects like um, um, John Oliver. We've got uh, Churchill. There's um, some very large high schools that need a, a and, and it's tricky to do because the entire school population may have to be relocated. And high schools require specialized classrooms, things like labs and different rooms that are trickier than an elementary school to uh, find temporary accommodation. So there is that pressure to do what Hammer's doing is you just build beside the old school. You lose your field space for a while and things like that. And it obviously is site dependent whether that's even feasible. We were talking with Patty Backus about seismic proofing of schools, an issue that still is with us. Except now we are learning the Vancouver School Board is doing or decided to do many of the talks about whether to replace schools or just rebuild them or not. Doing all this behind closed doors, the public not involved. Patty Backus uh, joining us uh, and continuing to be with us this afternoon. Patty, where do we go from here in Vancouver? What is needed going forward? I think it's important for uh, parents and the public to put pressure. There's a new school board, uh, almost uh, there's only, I think most of the trustees are new. There's a few that are holdovers from the previous board to really make it clear to them that uh, to call on them to provide that local representation that they need to insist 
that these meetings are held publicly. There's no reason for some of these meetings to be being held behind closed doors. There's absolutely none. This is these schools belong to the public. They're paid for by the public. They're community assets. Uh, we all pay for them. Uh, we should all be part of uh, that. Uh, understanding why decisions are being made as they are, and having an opportunity to provide input. When I sat on the Vancouver School Board for eight years, and six of those as chair, it was invaluable to hear from the public. Often we had people with a great deal of expertise and experience who provided points of view that we maybe weren't hearing in our staff reports that added to our understanding of the issue and broadened our our understanding of the impact of whatever decision we made. Uh, I don't see any use uh, other than trying to sort of hide from public pressure, which uh, you shouldn't run for office if you don't want to hear from the public and represent the public. So it's really on the new school board. And, of course, there's a new minister of education. uh, And and that's a collaborative relationship. It's co-governance because the government does uh, provide the funding for these projects, but the public needs to be a part of this. And I think if we don't insist on that from our elected officials, we won't get it in some cases, but the public and parents need to put the pressure on the elected school board to say, we want to be part of this process. We want this to be a transparent process. We want to see the reports and the rationale for decisions that are being made and have an opportunity to provide some input and commentary on that. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending time with us as uh, we continue to follow this and we'll be doing so right into 20. 23. Patty Backus, thank you. Thank you. The weather continues to make the news. Plenty of challenges uh, over the holidays. And of course, this is a time of year when those who are collecting blood are aware of the supply and the demand being much higher than usual. Now, That being said, we had a terrible reminder on Christmas Eve of just how important that is when you have things like that bus crash on Christmas Eve where four people unfortunately lost their lives and dozens of others were rushed to the hospital. That is a tragic incident on top of so many other accidents occurring at this time of year. And then there are just, you know, the demand for surgeries and so many other things where the blood and plasma demands really does peak at a time where you need more donors. Well, to talk a little bit about uh, the demand right now and the extreme call for even more people to come forward and donate is Gail Voyer, the Associate Director of Donor Relations and Collections for BC with Canadian Blood Services. Gail, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Bruce. I appreciate it. Of course, uh, this time of year, did I get it right? Are we always in just a little bit more demand under the best of circumstances? Um, you know what? Um, we do see there's there's a constant need for blood and blood donations. Um, this is a very, um, you know, traditionally a very typical um, hard time for us to um, collect donations. It's sort of our uh, most difficult time of year to collect donations, but it, with the additional weather impacts, um, and, uh, you know, weather and uh, cold and flu season, those are all having an impact on our ability to be able to uh, to collect what we need. Yeah, and it seems like, uh, you know, this kind of caught us by surprise. Nobody ever predicts us going back a month uh, from, you know, if you went back in early December, you would never think it's going to be terribly icy and it's going to be terribly uh, nasty and dangerous on the roads. And we're going to have a couple really bad crashes. And also we have this backlog of surgeries and, you know, boy, you just have so many of those different elements coming into play. And 
then you need uh, people to come forward and donate blood around the holidays when they're already busy. Um, how do you get the message out? What do you do at Canadian Blood Services to reach out and make sure the supply is really there? Well, we, we reach out to partners like yourself to um, make sure the community is aware. Um, well, you know, we're doing a number of uh, uh, reach outs to some of our partners, um, as well as media, um, urging donors from all communities who can safely get to a donor centre to book an appointment as soon as possible to just help restore and grow the blood and plasma supply for patients. I don't know if everyone is aware of this, but if you donate blood, say in Vancouver, um, it stays kind of in the area, doesn't it? It doesn't get shipped across the country, or does it? Um, we, we, we typically, anything that's donated um, typically in BC, we try to keep it in BC. However, because we are a national blood system, we are, um, say, you know, if BC is short on supply, then what we will do is we can um, knock on our neighbours um, to have them, you know, bring in plot products for us and vice versa, we can ship those out to them as needed. Um, but right now, yes, uh, everything is staying in BC. Are we taking in blood from elsewhere? Um, yes, yeah, we are um, relying on some of our uh, close close provinces. So um, Alberta, you know, the first one, of course. And so we yeah. will bring in blood and blood products as needed from, from other provinces. When you donate blood, how long does it actually uh, stay available? I, I don't know what the term for it would be, fresh, or uh, is there expiry, or do you take components out of it? How does that work? So blood, um, blood does expire, so we, that's why the need is constant. Um, so when blood is um, donated, it will last um, for the 42 days, and um, depending on what it's made into, but tech, de- uh, definitely the 42 days. Um, and so what we would, um, that's why we have that need for the constant call out for donors, because those blood and blood products would be made into, you know, other, you know, blood products that are needed um, and required for a variety of treatments for for patients. So um, that's, you know, that's why we need the constant call out to donors to continue to support the blood system. And I see the call now is for blood and plasma. Uh, What's the difference between the two? What is plasma and plasma collection? So there is um, plasma in everyone's um, blood. So we, we t- technically reference kind of the, the blood. So the um, plasma is the um, sort of yellow-colored um, portion of the blood when it is separated out, and it's uh, rich in protein. And so that it actually um, is used for a variety of different treatments for patients in need. So all of the blood can be broken down into components, um, depending on what products are needed for patients at the hospitals. Has uh, the last couple years, have we seen a bit of a change uh, during COVID on blood collection and blood demand, uh, either with surgeries or anything else, or has it uh, been pretty constant? We, you know, we did see some um, changes just in demand throughout COVID, just depending on, you know, sort of where we were at um, in the pandemic. But what we also did see is um, we also saw a drop in the number of um, donors that were supporting the blood system. So we have, um, we are working with currently the lowest donor base, donor base in more than a decade. It decreased um, um, has it decreased by about 31,000 um, donors um, that weren't able to donate for whatever reason anymore. And so that's why um, that having the lowest donor base in more than a decade, as well as some of these uh, weather and illness impacts, um, it's all kind of played a factor in um, getting the donations that we do require. You know, Raji Sohal uh, and I were having a conversation earlier today, uh, just the two of us. We used to donate blood all the time. And uh, it's not like we purposely quit. 
Um, but I guess life changes and you get more demands or something. And it kind of slips from your memory. Uh, the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, it's no longer a priority or something. How do you fight that? In uh, Or do you, do you see that? Or are we just, you know, kind of not the norm? No, it, it is it is the norm, I would say, Bruce. I think um, what happens is, you know, say if you get, a, get out of the routine of donating, um, then, you know, that can create a bit more of a gap between your, even your individual donations. And if that's compounded by a number of donations, then that starts to have an impact. And it's, um, it's kind of like anything that we put into our calendar. If you make it a regular thing, then you're more likely to, you know, to sort of attend. But if you leave it and say miss a donation for whatever reason and then kind of forget to book, then it, it does have an impact. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing, I think, is just, you know, especially at this time of year people can get out of routines um, just because they're spending time with you know family and friends and and what I would just say is that you know if you could you know encourage your family and friends to come with you make it a way of kind of giving back um, this season would be really helpful Um, but you know what it is it is something that we do see if if you get out of that routine then it is kind of um, it does take a little bit to urge um, people to get back into those routines. We're talking with Gail Voyer, the Associate Director Director of uh, Donor Relations and Collections for BC at Canadian Blood Services. Uh, Gail, it's I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about getting back into a routine. And 2023, that's something I, I'm going to put into my priority list. I don't make too many resolutions, but I think, you know, I used to do that. There is absolutely no reason... And after talking with you, I'm I'm just even more reminded of the need to continue to donate blood. But it's been so long. For me, I can't remember what the whole system is. What do you do when you want to donate blood? Like, where would somebody listening to this right now even start? Do they go to a website and book an appointment? Or how does that work? Absolutely. So um, they can actually visit um, blood.ca. Um, have a look um, at, if you, if you go to our homepage, you can actually type in the community that you're living in, um, in the Lower Mainland, and, and it'll let you know which donor centre you're closest to. There might be several listed, so you could book into any one of those. If you're looking to see, um, you can use blood.ca or our Give Blood app, and that one I say I would say is always very handy if you're, say, you know, out and about and all of a sudden your schedule changes and you have an hour free. The app um, is really helpful in booking same-day appointments. Um, If you want to know if you're eligible to donate, we also have an eligibility quiz at blood.ca. And you can take that quiz to see if you're eligible. If you have questions about um, anything that comes up on the eligibility quiz, you could also call our 1882-DONATE number and get any questions answered prior to your donation. Um, And then the key to sort of, the key is really just booking and keeping your appointment. Um, The last thing I would say is probably just to make sure you're prepared, is making sure you've had Um, at least a couple of liters of water the day before and the day of your appointment, making sure you're feeling well, and then also make sure you've had something to eat about at least an hour before your appointment and then bring government-issued ID as well with you. Um, When you get to our donor centres, then our staff will welcome you in and walk you through the steps of donating um, and uh, just help you out if you're a new donor or just need some more assistance in in, uh, reminding yourself of the process once you get into our donor centre. Do you still get juice and cookies? We... (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, of course. We uh, uh, we have our lovely volunteers that are handing out the juice and cookies post donation, and uh, we do have salty snacks and water um, <laughs> that we do recommend uh, in advance of your appointment. So when you get to the donor centres, you can enjoy some uh, salty snacks and water pre-donation, and then, of course, the juice and cookies after your donation. Fantastic. And what is uh, the repetition? What is the cadence uh, for being able to uh, book appointments? Uh, for donating um, blood, you can donate, uh, males can donate every 56 days and females are every 84 days. Um, and um, so you can, you know, four or six times a year. And so what I suggest is you kind of book them all for the calendar year and then you'll get the reminders um, either from blood.ca through email or through um, the Give Blood app, which, um, you know, is pretty handy because if you do need to change an appointment, then you can actually change it just right then and there on your phone with um, with uh, some, some pretty great ease. So um, yeah. I would encourage people to download that Give Blood app. Gail Voyer, great chat. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bruce. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all the donors that um, have got appointments. We hope to see you out at the donor centres. And if you don't have one, I um, urge you to book one today. You know, as we head into 2023, the COVID-19 virus, well, as much as we hate to say it, it's still with us. And in fact, it keeps on evolving, changing its form. Remember the Omicron or Omicron variant when we first heard about that last year or a little bit before the beginning of last year? Well, the variant of Omicron or Omicron, it keeps on, you know, kind of mutating. And last year's unpleasant holiday surprise is uh, is different than this year's. More than a year later, we have a group of disease detectives trying to figure out what it's all about and trying to track what the next variant's going to be and the impact of that. And one of those is joining us now. Fiona Brinkman is a distinguished professor of molecular biology and biochemistry at Simon Fraser University. Fiona, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Now, you know, we keep on talking about these uh, variants. When I first heard the term variant and started thinking about uh, COVID-19, I thought, oh, no, it's going to continue forever, just changing and changing. We'll never get rid of this. Right off the bat, are we ever going to see COVID-19 disappear? I don't think we're likely to see COVID-19 disappear, but... uh but don't don't worry. Uh, okay. Variants of all viruses occur all the time. Uh, this is nature that it makes little mistakes purposefully in its replication, and that's how we lead to um, new new evolution and new um, uh, organisms and new life, and it maintains life's diversity. So it's a it can be a very positive thing. Uh, but I have to say, yes, unfortunately, COVID nineteen. Um, you know, this is something that is likely here to stay, and uh, we will have to continue to track it just like um, other variants, um, viruses are tracked. I, I want to emphasize that, you know, public health and researchers have always been tracking various viruses, and this is uh, another one that definitely was a particular concern, but this is nothing new to have to do this kind of tracking. So are some of the variants more dangerous than others? And how do we know if that is, in fact, the case? Yeah, great question. It's um, it's very difficult to um, assess, uh, for example, whether it's more causing more severe disease until after it's really taken a hold in the population. But we can sort of quickly see 
if a given variant is spreading very rapidly, and that's always a big warning sign, because if you have something spread very rapidly, then it gets a lot of people sick. And even if it doesn't cause more severe disease, just the sheer number of cases will, you know, can overwhelm um, hospitals and the healthcare system. So, uh, you know, so we're definitely looking out for variants that have, um, you know, they're spreading much more quickly than we would expect. Um, And then there is obviously always an interest in variants that could um, evade our immune system better um, and variants that could cause uh, more severe disease. Okay, let's get up to speed with the very latest. We're uh, December 27th of 2022. What is the variant that we're dealing with right now and how would you describe it compared to others? Well, unfortunately, there isn't just one variant anymore. I think the big uh, news is before we had these sort of single variants that would really take off. And now we've got more what we call a super variants of um, variants like these uh, the BQ1.1 and um, other BQ variants. We've also got these other variants that are associated with this XBB lineage. We sort of um, call them the Scrabble variants because uh, Xs and um and uh, Qs are, no, you know, notable scoring uh, Scrabble letters. So, yeah, eight and um, ten points. So, yeah. yeah, so um, uh, so basically, uh, you know, there's this sort of soup of different variants that actually reflect certain mutations occurring in these variants that are, are common to many of these variants that are particularly good at evading our, our immune system, dampening down our immune system so it can't um, fight the infection as well. And uh, this is just nature selecting for this. If you if you have something that, you know, works a little better in a virus to help it spread, then, of course, that will spread more and you'll see more of that variant. So, uh, yeah. So basically, there's this sort of soup of variants occurring right now, particularly around this sort of what we call BQ type variants and XBB variants. And are they more likely to spread than what we saw at this time last year? Um. They definitely are spreading very well, but, uh, you know, I think the biggest concern last year was that we had a lot of people that weren't infected, um, you know, this time last year. And so there was a lot of people who could get a first-time infection, could get a very severe infection, and there was real a lot of concern about that. This year, we still have, um, you know, a concern about the number of infections are still, you know, uh, you know, way too high than we'd be comfortable with. But uh, but at least, um, you know, we do have these vaccines uh, available to provide some protection. We do have some ways to protect, protect each other. We don't have anything um, hitting us that is, um, you know, oh, no, you know, masks will no longer work. I mean, if you still stay six feet away from somebody, you, you know, you're, uh, you're still... Um, uh, relatively protected, though, of course, there is concern about airborne um, transmission. But I would like to emphasize that this is a, a situation where, uh, you know, there's still a lot of cases. And one of the best things you can do is really just to make sure you're keeping up to date on vaccines, because that really is um, the best mask you could wear this time. So if I'm hearing you right, Fiona, the precautions that you would take for any one of the variants uh, really does apply for all of them. Yes, yes. And, um, and, and really it comes down to, um, you know, keeping your immune system boosted uh, well. 
to avoid that uh, potential to get infection or to get reinfection. So uh, that's why, you know, you know, I know there's a lot of people who worry about the vaccines, but, you know, getting a vaccine is so much better than getting uh, knocked out with COVID for two weeks. And if you get a severe, if you get a severe case and, um, and it's just really hard for us to know when a severe variant will occur. We're not going to know for a little while. So, you know, this is really one of the best ways to protect yourself at this time. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. Myself and my immediate family, we've uh, been COVID-free for the whole uh, time. We're uh, all... Um, Great. Yeah, we're vaxxed up to where we should be with uh, the latest vaccinations for all of us. But uh, does that mean that we should have more confidence that uh, perhaps we're a little bit more immune to it than somebody else? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's... Um uh, definitely people going around who are getting exposed and not getting sick. And there's always going to be that case, even with the um, uh, the plague. I mean, it, you know, it kills an incredible number of people, but there would always be those people who would be um, immune. Um, HIV, there was always these people who get repeatedly exposed and be immune. So there is that. But I would certainly not count on it. I was in the same boat <laughs> before when I thought... Yep. Uh, you know, hey, am I maybe not going to ever get this? And then I got hit. So, um, so uh, you know, I encourage you uh, to just, um, you know, keeping up on vaccines can really make a difference. Um, you know, paying attention in, in, in certain surroundings uh, to your risk and, you know, uh, you know, getting out when you've just been vaccinated, say, or a month since vaccination. You know, that's a time when you should be able to get out and do a lot of stuff, Um uh, right now, according to current data, but of course that might change. And um, you know, it's it's really hard to say for a given individual, except that having a vaccine shot is a good thing. Um, the for the people who have had COVID, um, one of the things to be aware of is that also gives you a good uh, sort of essentially like a vaccine dose. Mm. So that's a good thing. Um, if you don't have a very severe disease, and my you know my apologies to and and sympathies for those who've been um, you know severely affected, uh, but the I can't emphasize enough that um, it still can be very wise to get a another vaccine shot. And one of the concerns is some people are getting COVID and then feeling like they can't you know they're okay now and they they don't need to worry anymore. But um, uh, but, you know, it, there's definitely cases occurring of people getting, uh, you know, COVID and then um, and th- not thinking anything of it, but then getting a really uh, more significant bout of COVID later. Talking now about COVID-19 and continuing with that discussion is Fiona Brinkman, who has joined us. She is a distinguished professor of molecular biology and biochemistry over at SFU. Just before the break, I mentioned that we were going to talk about a little bit about these uh, clusters or the new clusters and the importance of detecting them because, Fiona, they really do tell a story, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, so, uh, you know, I do want to emphasize, though, that all this tracking is really about allowing people to get back to normal but uh, but this tracking does involve, involve sort of increased complexity now is, is really the big story. There's a lot of different variants um, 
occurring, but they do have common um, features that do tell a story. Like we had this um, um, mutation at the spike protein in position 386, I have them all memorized now, (laughs) Um, that uh, basically was really rising for a while, and that was um, rising because, you know, it could basically that, mutation allowed it to infect more of the Canadian population. Uh, right now, there's another mutation, this F486P uh, mutation in the spike protein of the virus that we're also tracking. So as we track these different mutations and these different variants, you sort of start to see this, this um, you know, flow as these uh, sort of new variants occur that increasingly have these mutations that allow it to allow it to spread um, even with our sort of um, uh, immune system uh, boost that we've had from vaccine or infection. And I, I do want to say, though, that unfortunately that, that, immune, um, that um, immune evasion or the, sorry, the immunity you have um, when you first get a shot, it does work really well, say, a month after you've got the shot. It's a great time to get out there and do stuff and, you know, encourage people to live their lives. Um, that's one reason why vaccines are good because you can just get out there. Uh, but but then um, it does wane, and you end up with this problem of um, this risk of uh, infection or reinfection. It's not like the flu, which is more of a one and done disease, where you get flu and then you're sort of good for a while. You know, I hate uh, bringing out the crystal ball for you to look into, but I'm going to do that a little bit here and break it down into uh, just normal terms, uh, not academic terms, but uh, a little bit so we can understand where we may, just may, be going in the future. Do you think, well, first of all, are you optimistic or pessimistic as we go into the future concerning COVID-19? Very simply. Yeah, I'm optimistic, actually. Um, But I am an optimistic person. When you're in research, things don't work so well. (laughs) You you know, most of the time. So you just get used to being an optimist. uh, But But why uh, are you optimistic? You would still have to have reasons for that optimism. So share that with us. Yeah, because I see, um, you know, vaccines having made a difference. Uh, You know, if you look at the data, um, it really has protected a lot of people and saved a lot of lives and 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 these are people this is not just statistics these are people who are now still living their lives who've been protected and some of many of them got covid but it wasn't that bad and that's a great thing and it makes me very optimistic for the future um i think uh you know we're using this opportunity of this pandemic to set up um expanded infrastructure public health has done an incredible job of expanding their capability for tracking uh, variants and tracking diseases. And this can be expanded to other diseases in the future. And there's a lot of conversations about how to, you know, better improve, um, you know, the healthcare system as a result of this. Uh, So, you know, I I think there is a lot of um, potential for this to be positive. I do think we still need to be careful. And, but, you know, one of the goals of, researchers in public health is to be able to work in the background and you know hopefully we can get to that point where we're um you know just quietly working in the background tracking um 
tracking diseases. Well, let's hope so. And all the best to you and to the teams that you work with, uh, not only at SFU, but obviously right across the country and around the world. Fiona Brickman, yeah, thanks. I, I, would, I, yeah. I would really like to thank, um, there's a huge team of people who've worked, you know, sort of on top of their day job to try to help um, get infrastructure set up. And uh, this uh, Covernet group, this variant rapid response network and the public health collaborators have been key. And so, um, you know, there is a lot of work going on and just, um, but, uh, you know, hopefully it'll allow people to get out there and and live their lives. Well, you're thanking them, but uh, a lot of other people listening right now are also thanking them. So very important work ahead. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. You know, there are flood watches and high stream advisories for Vancouver Island and, in fact, much of the inner south coast of B.C. That heavy rain and the high tides or king tide still playing a factor and causing some concerns in and around Vancouver. And these are just a few of the problems that we know of. Uh, Coal Harbour, some of the streets down around Coal Harbour right by, you know, the uh, waterfront flooded this morning and some cars having difficulty there. Mitchell Island, access to Mitchell Island closed. In Delta, well, uh, parts of Ladner have been uh, dealing with flooding. And of course, we have the city crews with the city of Delta out in the Beach Grove Boundary Bay area. And they've been concerned about the king tide and watching that very closely. Myself, uh, I always uh, check Harvey Road in the area around Cloverdale And that's on my ride home. So far, I haven't uh, heard of any problems there, but that is also another one that is affected when you get some of the heavy rains and certainly concerns about king tide. Well, to make sense of this, we're bringing in Ken Desange, meteorologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. Ken, thanks so much for uh, spending time on a very, very wet Tuesday. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well, I got to get to the just the basic question here. Are we expecting more of this? Yeah, good question. Um, so this morning, I'll take it back this morning. This morning, we had a deep low pressure center that was sitting off Vancouver Island, bringing very adverse, adverse weather conditions to the south coast of BC this morning. Now, this system was accompanied by strong southeasterly winds and heavy rain. Now, you combine these strong winds and adverse weather conditions with a king tide, and that leads to concerns for coastal flooding, and that's definitely what we saw, where it provided strains on retaining walls and dikes as well. So the primary hazard for the coastal flooding is pretty much along the Strait of Georgia, near the high tide this morning. And in particular, it was a strong southeast flow. So regions that were kind of southeast-facing coastlines, caused some beach erosions. We also saw some coastal infrastructure damage pretty much through majority of the lower mainland, anywhere from Squamish down to the lower mainland, south coast, uh, south delta, White Rock, and even East Vancouver Island. So looking to the future, um, especially for the next following days, we are still going to see a the water level pretty high. Um, so I'd anticipate some high water levels, but the difference is the low pressure center will be away from us. So we aren't expecting as strong of winds, which kind kind of combine that uh, accumulating factor. I think, Ken, we've seen the pictures in the past, and I certainly remember the ones for Boundary Bay when it was hit by damaging uh, high tides and uh, those, or the king tides and the uh, winds. Um, 
That is what the fear was like this morning. They they were fearing that that could have been a possibility. That did not happen. What was the difference? What uh, what saved that area? Uh, good question. I, I think the threat was certainly there. Um, we had the culminating factors of the high water levels in addition to the strong winds. If I had to guess, it would be the orientation of the winds. The winds were not perfectly in direct uh, proportion, I would say, propagating right to the coastline. So that's probably the direct um, reason, um, which is thankful. But there were still, we still saw some coastal infrastructure damage to most of the lo- uh, lots of regions along the lower mainland. What about Vancouver Island? How's uh, Vancouver Island holding up? We heard of areas like Chaminas having difficulties uh, yesterday. How are they now? Good question. Um, There still is some road closures, especially on East Vancouver Island, places closer along the coastline, um, like Comox, regions along East East Vancouver Island, where you basically have the southeast winds um, uninterrupted and providing a very long fetch towards the island. So East Vancouver Island, pretty much from Nanaimo up until Comox and Campbell River, seem to be most affected. And uh, I know also yesterday, and uh, perhaps even the day before, there was concern about avalanches. Uh, Are we past that now? I know that's usually the concern when you just bump over the freezing level. But to the best I know, we've been up over the freezing level for uh, almost a day and a half or a couple days now. Yeah, great question. Um, I think the threat is still... uh there, I know Avalanche Canada still has dangerous avalanche conditions through the region um, and even higher throughout the interior. Now, the concern is we have a few factors at play. We've had the very cold air mass that was in, in mid to late December. And now that we switched everything to war- a war- more warmer air mass, freezing levels have risen, and you're getting um, not only melting, you're getting a lot of snow melt at mid and high alpine territories. So that combination of factors um, leads to concern for avalanches, and I think the threat is still at play. So the backcountry is uh, one area that we're definitely going to have to watch. Um, It's Tuesday now. We're uh, looking toward the weekend, which is going to be, you know, New Year's Eve. It's coming up. What are we looking at? Are, Are things as far out as you can go with confidence are things going to return to uh, less of a concern? Good question. Um, now that we've basically switched our flow from the Arctic air to more Pacific air, we are continuing to see wave after wave of systems. Now, tomorrow, mid-work week, should be generally okay for the South Coast. However, we are getting another system that's going to push through from the Pacific Ocean at the end of the work week, so we're going to continue to see more rainfall occur Um, pretty much end of the work week. Now, looking into the weekend, it will still be unsettled, so the chance of showers is still there. Okay, and uh, Ken, final question. Many of us have friends and relatives in other parts of the country. I know we've been talking a lot about uh, our weather, but how are they holding up? Uh, Who's got it worse right now? I can't make too much of a comment on who has it worse or not. Um, I'm primarily focused on our province and and just trying to keep everything working here. Okay, well, fair enough. You know, we hear of all the stories, especially down in places like Buffalo and such, but uh, it's been a tough winter and uh, a tough holiday season for all of us. Ken, thanks for joining us.